And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 35. In Genesis chapter 35. <clears throat> And um, if you're visiting here, I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, just know that you've picked a doozy of a day to come because we'll be reading into Genesis 36, which is a very long genealogy. But the good thing is, is that if you can handle this, you can handle just about anything that we throw here at you at Harvin's Church. Um, if I can be really honest and candid with you, I'd like to make a confession, and we'll see if you still want me to be your pastor after I confess it. There have been times in my life where I've had flashes of moments in my mind and in my heart where I have envied unbelievers, people who are not following the Lord. Perhaps you know the feeling. You look around and there are people who totally disregard God and yet they seem to be having a great life. Uh, whether that be celebrities, athletes, rich people, people who have political power, people who have influence, they're doing really, really great. And meanwhile, you're trying to honor the Lord, and your life is in shambles. Things are not going well. Your life is not everything that you had hoped that it would be. Uh, you're, you're, maybe your kids aren't turning out according to your hopes and your dreams. Your family is dysfunctional. You are dysfunctional. It's just one trial after another, and life is so hard. The Bible is not unaware of this reality. In fact, we're forced to deal with it head on in Genesis 35 and 36. We've been studying the life of Jacob. Jacob's not a perfect man, but he is God's man. And while we've seen low points in his life, we've also seen encouraging progress, haven't we? Last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 35, where Jacob emerges from spiritual complacency to spiritual revival. God commands Jacob to follow through on a vow that he made many years ago, but he sinfully put it off. Uh, he was supposed to go to Bethel and worship God there and wholeheartedly devote himself to the Lord, and this time, Jacob immediately obeys. What's more, Jacob finally exercises godly spiritual leadership in his home as he urges his household to get rid of their pagan idols and to commit themselves to God. And, and God affirms the changes in Jacob's life and reminds him of his new name, his new name, Israel, which speaks of one who prevails in life, not through his own strength, but through his weakness as he relies on God's strength through faith. God tells Jacob, I'm going to bless you, and, and you're going to become a great nation. Even kings are going to come from you. And God affirms to him that great promise that through you, Jacob, I'm going to bless the entire world. If the phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is true for anyone, it's for Jacob. And so, what does that mean? What does that mean for Jacob's life moving forward? That things get easier? No. Instead, Jacob is about to face some very difficult and very painful moments. Uh, we're going to consider Jacob's trials, but we're also going to check in with Jacob's brother Esau, who, unlike Jacob, has spent his entire life despising the things of God. We're going to see how his life is going compared to Jacob's. My prayer is that the Lord is going to speak to you through the Scriptures this morning in such a way that even as you struggle through the afflictions of life, you will be able to do so with great hope, being strengthened and comforted by His Word. So as we prepare to hear from God, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Genesis chapter 35, and we're going to start at verse 16. And then we're going to read into chapter 36, which is this very long genealogy. It's the genealogy of Esau. These parts of the Bible can be very difficult to read. Lots of names. 
And it's easy for your eyes to glaze over as you're reading through that. I'm going to challenge you not to do that, but instead I want you to think about what you're reading and, and ask yourself some questions. What, what are some couple things that stick out in this genealogy? Ask yourself, why is this here? Because this is the Word of God. And think about and ponder, where does this fit in in the context of the book of Genesis and in the context of the larger Bible story? So we're going to read through 36. And then we're going to read just the first couple of verses of 37. So it's a longer scripture reading, but I trust you'll hang with me. Genesis 35, starting at verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying. She called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent towards the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, at Kirath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zebian the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Reuel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he'd acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Sair. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel. Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mazah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zebian, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son. The chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mazah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the daughters born of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Sair the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobah, Zebian, Anah, Dishon, Azir, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Sair in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Himam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal. 
Alvan, Mahath, Ebal, Shepo, and Oman. These are the sons of Zebian, Ayah and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zebian, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Aholabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Himdan, Eshban, Ethran, and Sharan. These are the sons of Izir, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Harites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zebian, Anna, Dishon, Izir, Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Harites, chief by chief in the land of Sair. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of his city was Dinhabah. Bela died, and jo- Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Timonites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avif. Hadad died, and Salma of Masrekah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehitabel, the daughter of Metred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jehith, Ohalabama, Elah, Pimnon, Kinaz, Timon, Mizbar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possessions. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, bless the preaching and the hearing of your word this morning. Illuminate the text by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Yes, that was hard for you to hear. I guarantee you it was harder for me to read. You get up here and try that. All right, so let's think about these things that we have just read. There's actually, there's actually just a handful of things that I want us to consider as we take in this large text of Scripture. And the first thing I want us to consider is the hardship of God's people. The hardship of God's people. And sometimes when Christians tell others that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, The idea is that if you are really experiencing God's love and plan, that things will go well for you in the sense of ease and comfort and increasing prosperity, where relationships are getting better and better, uh, where you can experience your best life now, as one author put it, or as that same author put it elsewhere, every day can be a Friday. Sounds good. I like Fridays. And yet, the Bible stands out as the one book that tells us the truth about life for God's people. God does love His people, and God does have a wonderful plan for their lives. But, to paraphrase the Princess Bride's Inigo Montoya, you keep talking about this wonderful plan. I do not think it means what you think it means. After God meets Jacob at Bethel and promises amazing, spectacular blessings to him, laying out his wonderful plan for Jacob, what immediately happens after that? What's the next great event in Jacob's life? Rachel enters into hard labor. Verse 17 says that when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing for she was dying, she called his name Benani. Benani means son of my sorrow. Rachel is overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. And as she slips into eternity, you can only imagine the sorrow for Jacob. Remember who Rachel is. Rachel is the one who captured Jacob's heart at first sight. 
He loved her so much that he did slave labor for her, for, for her uh, father for 14 years. Uh, she was the only wife that Jacob really wanted, and she always had a special place in his heart. Uh, there's a touching moment later on in Genesis in chapter 48 uh, where Jacob is a very old man, and he's talking to his grown son Joseph, and he interrupts himself, and he says, as for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath. Even so many years later, as an old man, Jacob's heart is heavy over the memory of Rachel's passing. And what we see here is that even for God's people, the bitterness of suffering and death is a reality. We live in a fallen and corrupt world, and no one escapes that reality. Now, Jacob barely has time to recover from the blow of losing beloved Rachel when he's struck by more trouble. Verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Now, to understand the depth of what is happening here, we need to remember that Jacob had two main wives, Leah and Rachel. And back when those sisters were engaged in bitter rivalry, remember the baby war that we talked about back in chapters 29 and 30? They were competing for status and prominence in the home and for Jacob's love. And they were so desperate for children that they each gave Jacob their maidservant to be secondary wives for Jacob. Rachel gave Jacob Bilhah, Leah gave him Zilpah, and whatever children the servant women bore would belong to their mistresses. It was legal was not right. But, but what happens here is that the, the seeds are, are being sown in, uh, for, for family rivalry, a rivalry that rips the home apart. As Jacob plays favorites, not just with his wives, but with his children. Jacob loved Rachel, but not Leah. And therefore, Jacob has a special concern for the children of Rachel above Leah's children. In fact, even though Reuben is technically Jacob's firstborn, he's the firstborn through Leah. And Genesis hints that Jacob probably considers Joseph, the firstborn of beloved Rachel, to be his true heir. And, and it's noteworthy that right after Rachel's death, Reuben lay with Bilhah, Rachel's servant. And what's happening here is not merely sexual sin. It is that but it's more than that. This is clearly a political move. In the ancient Near East, when one king would conquer another, the victor would take the concubines of the defeated king as a sign of mastery, as a way of saying that I'm, I'm now the one in charge. I'm the one taking over. As a matter of fact, we see this much later on in the, in the book of Second Sam, uh, Samuel when, when David's son Absalom is in revolt against David and, and, he, and, he, and he takes David's concubine. This is something like what Reuben is doing. He, he's trying to secure prominence for himself in the home and he's trying to displace Jacob as the head of the home. It may also be a way of preventing Bilhah from replacing Rachel as the primary matriarch of the family, securing Leah's status but also securing his own status over Joseph. This is a deep betrayal of his father, and so, again, Jacob has to mourn. He has reason to mourn and grieve deeply. In fact, just like he never forgot about the pain of Rachel's death, he never forgets about the pain of Reuben's betrayal. Years later, on his deathbed, as he's giving the patriarchal prophetic blessings to his son, for Reuben, all he can give is an anti-blessing. <laughs> Jacob says in Genesis 49, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Sounds good so far, right? Well, keep reading. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, of course, Jacob himself is not totally innocent. While Reuben is responsible for his own sin, it's not hard to connect the dots where you see Jacob's sins of favoritism and years of poor spiritual leadership coming back on him now. And so, as God's people journey through life, it's not just the sins of others against us that brings us hardship, but also our own. 
But then there's a third hammer blow. In verse 27, we're told that Jacob came to his father Isaac just in time to see him die. And he has to bury him. Friends, Jacob is a part of God's people. He's not perfect, but he is part of God's people, and he is a man of faith. He is blessed by God. He's trying to follow God. And yet even Jacob, many years later, as an old man, finds himself standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt. Yes, Jacob is in exile again. And and as he reflects back on his own life, he says to Pharaoh in Genesis 47, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. I love Jacob's candid realness. <laughs> Few and evil have been the days of my life. He's not like some Christians who just show up at church with a fake smile acting like every day is a Friday. Every day is not a Friday. Some days are really hard. And some of you know that. You're going through it right now. Difficulty and hardship are actually promised to all of God's people. This isn't just a Jacob thing, it's a Christian thing. Ian Duguid writes that the normal zip code of the church in this present age is not the idealistic but imaginary utopia we often read about in Christian books and magazines. Rather, it is the real world of wreckage and ruins and chaos. That's the church's zip code. It's where we live. You encouraged yet? Visitors are thinking, wow, I picked a great day to come. I'm coming back next week for more. (laughs) Well, hang with me. As as we move into chapter 37, we have what all of you have been waiting for, and that's the genealogy, which leads to my second point, and that's the prosperity of the wicked. So we have the hardship of God's people, now the prosperity of the wicked. Genealogies are always challenging for Bible readers and for preachers. Uh, One commentator notes that genealogies do not easily inspire theological reflection. Thank you very much. Well, in Genesis, one purpose for genealogies is comparison and contrast as the storyline of Genesis follows a motif established early on in the book that there are only two kingdoms. There's only two groups of people in the world, God's people and the serpent's people, the devil's people. Uh, those who love and follow God and those who reject Him and go their own way. And Genesis likes to contrast those groups through uh, genealogies. And and so uh, this genealogy of Esau is juxtaposed with the genealogy of Jacob, which begins in chapter 37, which is when I was doing this, which is why when I was doing the scripture reading, I I went into 37 verse 2, which says these are the, this this is the um, uh, the genealogy of, of Jacob. Generations of Jacob, because I wanted you to see those two things standing against one another. That's that's what Moses is trying to do here. He's standing these two families against one another, and in doing so, that is meant to inspire theological reflection. When you consider what we already know about Jacob's family, and you combine that with what you see from chapter 37 onward, you'll see that, yes, Israel will become a great nation, (laughs) But it comes through extreme difficulty. The rivalries and the infighting in Israel's family is going to come to a head in chapter 37 with the betrayal of Joseph by his brothers, followed by continued sin and massive dysfunction. The nation of Israel, in seed form, is a people that are biting and devouring one another and seem on the brink of collapse and self-destruction. On the other hand... You look at Esau's family in Genesis 36, it's really impressive. His people are quickly flourishing. The seed of the serpent seems to be growing and seems more blessed than Jacob's line. And indeed, for Jacob's line, things go from bad to worse as they will all end up going into exile in Egypt and eventually their descendants will become slaves there for hundreds of years. What a start for a great nation. So, if I'm just doing a surface-level reading about Esau's line, and I'm comparing it with Jacob's family, now if I had to choose between Team Esau and Team Jacob, sign me up for Team Esau, because they seem to be doing a lot better. Now, why is that? Well, 
love how one commentator puts it. He says, secular greatness in general grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. I really like that. Secular greatness in general grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. That's really profound, I think. It's true. So let's see how Esau grows up. Uh, Chapter 36, verse 1 says, These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Edom is Esau's nickname, means red. And that name is associated with an event in chapter 25, where Esau, driven by his hunger, desperately wants a bowl of red stuff that Jacob was cooking. And he's so eager to get it that he trades his birthright to Jacob in exchange for the food. And of of course, in addition to inheritance, that birthright was also about spiritual leadership in the family and and, and God's covenant promises to become a great nation and inherit Canaan and bring blessing and salvation to the world. But Esau didn't care about any of that. He cared more about satisfying his physical urges and impulses in the moment than God's redemptive purposes. He, he trades all of that in for a bowl of red stuff. That really summarizes Esau's life and how he is, just living by the moment, living by his desires. If it feels good, do it. If I want to do it now, then I'm going to do it. That, that's just how he is. Chapter 25 says that Esau despised his birthright. And so that, that means he despises the things of God. And so in this genealogy, as Moses keeps calling Esau Edom, he's not just reminding his readers, hey, here's where the Edomites come from, but he's taking us back to that moment, reminding us of Esau's callousness and his disregard for the things of God. Esau's spiritual hard-heartedness is also seen in his choice of wives. Verse 2, we're told that Esau marries Canaanite women. Now, the Canaanites, of course, we've talked about them before. They were absolutely evil and depraved and and deep into sin and idolatry. In fact, Genesis 26 says that Esau's wives brought much grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And in chapter 27, when Esau realizes that his parents are displeased and they command his brother Jacob to instead marry into Abraham's family, dim-witted Esau decides to marry again. Impulsive here. I want to get back into to mom and dad's good graces. I'm, I'm going to try this again. And so he, he marries into Ishmael's family. Not a good idea. Yes, Ishmael is Abraham's son, but Ishmael's family was the godless rejected line. Kent Hughes notes that a man's choice in marriage showcases his values and is almost always the determining factor in the trajectory of his life. I I need to read that again. It's so good. A man's choice in marriage showcases his values and is almost always the determining factor in the trajectory of his life. And of course, you could say her life as well. Works both ways. But remember that, single people, as you're considering a spouse. You have zero business getting tangled up in romantic dating relationships with unbelievers. Now, some Christians like to spiritualize dating unbelievers by saying they're evangelizing. They're going to convert that person to Jesus. It's missionary dating. You know what often happens in that situation is that there usually is a conversion. The believer is converted. For the worse, as, 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 as spiritually they begin to be affected negatively by the other person. And so I would urge you to run far and run fast from that kind of relationship for the sake of your own soul. If your heart is being drawn to godless people, I would lovingly challenge you to examine your heart and ask yourself, what does that say about you? What it says about Esau is that he rejected the God of his fathers. Well, In verses 4 and 5, he begins to have sons. And in verse 5, we find that he's living in Canaan, which is interesting because we've seen in chapter 33 that as a nomadic hunter, he's already occupied the land of Seir, which is outside of Canaan. But evidently, for a while, he has a foot in both regions. But that changes. Verse 6 says, 
that Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. (laughs) Moses is reminding us again. Esau is Edom. So Esau packs up and leaves Canaan because he and Jacob's households were too great for them to live in the same area. Does that sound familiar? Is that an echo of something that we've already seen in Genesis? Reminds me of Abraham and Lot, where Lot departs from Abraham, decides where to live based not on spiritual principles, but entirely on the principle of, of the potential for material prosperity and wealth And he goes into the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, the most godless place of its time. He goes eastward, just outside the borders of the promised land, to live there. Now, in Genesis, to leave the land, to leave the promised land, is never a good thing. To go east is never a good thing. It tends to be associated, uh, literally speak, uh, in a literary fashion, it's associated with moving away from God moving away from the center of his blessing. Now Esau is doing the same thing that Lot did. Esau could have relocated to a different part of Canaan. In fact, if you remember back in, in uh, chapter 34, <clears throat> when, when, the, when Jacob is, is dealing with the Shechemites, the people of Shechem, and, and they, they give the impression, hey, there's plenty of room for all of us to, to live here. He could have, Esau could have relocated to a different part of Canaan, but instead he goes eastward and he moves out of the land altogether. Bruce Walkey notes that this is one of the main differences between God's people and the unbeliever in the book of Genesis. He writes that the patriarchs who stake their future on God's promises move towards the promised land, but the non-elect who live by sight, they're, they're, they're focused on social, political, or economic realities. They live by sight and not by faith. They move away from the land. Now, Esau's choice to leave the land of promise is virtually the same as Esau choosing to leave God. And so the question is, is how, what happens then to Esau? How does Esau fare when he fully and finally rejects God? He does great. Let's pick up the genealogy in verse 15. And as I read this, you're going to hear a lot of strange names. It's going to get easy to get lost in this, but I want you to pay close attention because there is one word that keeps popping up over and over again from verses 15 through 19. Let's see if you catch what it is because it's important. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korab, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz and the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Raul, Esau's son, the chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mazah. These are the chiefs of Raul in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the, the, are the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife. The chiefs, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholabama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. What word keeps popping up over and over again? Yeah, very good. Good job. Uh, Chiefs. These are tribal lords, powerful people. And what you have here is the people of Edom, they're growing and they're developing into a prosperous and powerful nation. And one thing we're seeing is that God is true to his word. In chapter 25, when Esau and Jacob were still in their mother's womb fighting and wrestling, God told uh, Rebekah that both sons would become nations. And we see this beginning to happen with Esau's people. But there's more. Verse 20. Verse 20 says, These are the sons of Sair the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. And then it lists off more descendants who were also chiefs. And at the end of verse 30, it says, these are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Sire. Now notice, there's a very subtle shift from, verses, from verse 19 to verse 20. We had been reading about Esau and his descendants. And now in verse 20, we find ourselves reading about the sons of Sire, the Horites. So Sire is not only a place, but a man. And he's a Horite. 
And the Horites were the residents and rulers of Sair. And the fact that this listing of Sair's descendants is under the larger umbrella of Esau's genealogy means that Esau and his clan are displacing the Horite people. In fact, Deuteronomy 2.12 says just that. It says, the Horites also lived in Sair formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place. So now we know exactly what Esau did when he left the promised land. He ravaged Sair and he took it, took it over. And his clan intermarries with the surviving Horites. And so we have a demonstration of Esau's continued growth, growing political and military power. Uh, he, he's a mover and shaker in, at this time period. Uh, think, and think about this. Esau goes into a land not promised to him, and he displaces them with little problem. And yet as you read the Bible story further, Jacob's sons enter into a land promised to them, and they experience incredible problems and difficulties. And Israel endures hundreds of years of affliction before they can even begin to seriously possess the land. But there's more. Verse 31 says, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. So now we have gone from chiefs to kings. Sounds like an upgrade. Esau has leveled up. But then, even more striking, is that Moses writes, These are the kings who reigned in Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. What God had promised Jacob that he would become a great nation seems to be happening instead to Esau. Esau and his people gained power and status and authority and political influence and, uh, and greatness and royal kingship long before Israel ever does. The kingdom of Esau looks much better off than the kingdom of God. And the antipathy that existed between Esau and Jacob is intensified in their descendants as the Edomites despised Israel and was a thorn in Israel's side constantly throughout the Bible story. Perhaps no verse describes Edom's hatred of Israel more than Amos 1.11, where the prophet writes that Edom pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever." So you have the Edomites, pagan, idol-worshipping, despising the God of Jacob, persecuting the people of God, and yet, at the same time, prosperous, powerful, influential, successful. Esau does well, Jacob struggles, and it does not seem fair. We experience the same perplexity Today, when we look at our world and we see the godless prosper and God's people struggle, and it does not seem fair. And we, we slip into a kind of attitude that Asaph once confessed to having in Psalm 73. Asaph says, I was envious of the arrogance. Okay, Asaph is writing about a very dark moment in his life where he just he, he, he slips into depression. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That, that was a compliment, by the way, back then. <laughs> okay, they're doing well. They're eating well. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Now... Now, we know from the Bible and just from looking at the world around us that, that even people, people who don't follow God have trouble too. But you know how it is when you slip into the depths of depression and it seems like everybody else is doing wonderful and, and you're not. This is, this is real life. Asaph is going through the same thing. And then he says in verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He says, the wicked disregard God and do great, and I try to follow God and everything blows up. Seems like it's in vain. Life's getting worse. You ever felt that way? Come on, I know some of you have. You're afraid to admit it, but you felt that way. 
I wonder if Jacob felt that way as the years went on. He deals with squabbling sons. He dwells in tents like a visitor to a land that's supposed to be his, but really isn't right now, while Esau enjoys lordship over a land that is undisputably his. Esau seems to enjoy the good life, while Jacob, in his own words, says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. So, now what? Does does the Bible speak more to this stark juxtaposition between his people and the ungodly? And, and, and our affliction and their success? And does the Bible provide some help for us as we struggle through life? And it does, which leads to my final thoughts where we see glimmers of hope. Glimmers of hope. Believe it or not, there are glimmers of hope in our text today. <clears throat> While there is great sadness in the death of Rachel in chapter 35, the birth of Benjamin brings hope. Rachel names him Benani, son of sorrow. Jacob overrules that. By the way, he's exercising more spiritual leadership. And this, is, this is the first time, by the way, Jacob actually names one of his kids. The, the ladies were, were, were doing it before that. So Jacob overrules her, and he declares his son's name to be Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And it's a hopeful name. And Jacob is right to sense hope in the coming of this child because Benjamin is the final son. Uh, Genesis 35:22 says, "Now the sons of Jacob were 12." That is huge. It's one of the most significant moments in the history of redemption as this group of sons, as flawed and as imperfect and sinful as they might be, become the heads of 12 tribes which become the foundation for the nation of Israel. As Esau will become a nation, a kingdom, so will Jacob. And so we see that in spite of all the hardship and all the trials and all the sin, and even in the face of death itself, what's happening here? God is keeping his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. His plans and his purposes are moving forward. His plan to make them into a great nation that will bring blessing and salvation to the whole world. There's another glimmer of hope. In chapter 36, Esau foolishly abandons the promises of God and departs Canaan. But chapter 37 begins with the words, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. This geographical divide between Jacob and Esau speaks to a deeper spiritual divide between the brothers. And it also now leaves Jacob as the undisputed heir of the promised land. And the rest of the Bible story does not focus on the Edomites in Sire, but on the Israelites in the land of promise. But nevertheless, there is continued struggle between these two nations as as there was between Jacob and Esau himself. Esau sprouted up fast and became quickly powerful. Israel's growth was slow with a lot of setbacks. But, But in time, they grow powerful catch up with and surpass Edom. Indeed, from Israel emerges a great king named David who defeats and brings Edom under his power. But sadly, due to sin and infighting mirroring the dysfunction of their ancestors, the Davidic kingdom weakens and falls apart and, and, and Israel finds themselves subjugated again by Gentile nations. As time passes, Edom eventually becomes known as Edomea, and and one particularly powerful family from Edomea begins to rule over Israel, and that family was the Herodian dynasty. You've probably heard of their most famous or infamous king, King Herod the Great. Remember the Bethlehem massacres that we're going to think more about as we get into Christmas time? Yes, King Herod was an Edomite. And how ironic, he's over Israel. (laughs) And once again, it seems like the Edomites are doing much better. Israel's royal dynasty has faded. David is long dead. The ruler of Israel is an Edomite. 
And the relationship between Herod's family with Israel, and in particular with the Christ, whom Herod the Great tried to murder, personifies and climaxes this hostile relationship between Edom and Israel. And yet, in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, there is a prophecy that looks forward to a day where David's kingly dynasty will be restored and will become a global, uh, will have global dominion. And the nations of the world, the non-Jewish Gentile peoples will be assimilated into this kingdom and experience the blessings of the kingdom. And Amos mentions one nation in particular that represents the Gentile peoples, and that nation is Edom. Amos looks forward to a day where even the Edomites will be saved and brought into the people of God, not subjugated by force, but their hearts are conquered as God redeems them and brings them into His family. So when you get to the New Testament, you find an interesting juxtaposition between Herod and Jesus much like the striking contrast between Jacob and Esau. Herod, the descendant of Esau, is doing very well. He's king over the promised land. He's enjoying massive power and riches, and by worldly standards is on top of the world. And yet he totally disregards God. And then you have Jesus, the descendant of Jacob, the son of God, the rightful king, the heir of David, and the rightful heir to the promises of God, and he's a nobody born to a poor teenage girl and carpenter from backwater Nazareth, under, uh, uh, born under great hardship. Bo- uh, he's a king, but he's not born in a palace. He's born among beasts, laid down in an animal's feeding trough. A humiliating situation, humiliating circumstances. But Jesus comes to establish a global kingdom A kingdom, he says, starts out small, like the smallest of seeds. But in time, it grows to be larger and larger than anything else. Indeed, it fills the earth. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see glimpses of his global intentions. In Mark chapter 3, at the beginning of his ministry, we're told that a great crowd followed Jesus from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. When the crowd heard what he, all that he was doing, they came to him. Notice that. Included among Jesus' followers are people from Edomea. The Edomites are coming to Jesus because he came for them. But before Jesus' kingdom can come to full fruition, there must first come even more hardship and trouble for this son of Jacob. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows. He's afflicted and stricken by God. Jesus was God's man more than Jacob ever was. Perfect and pure and sinless. And yet on the cross, he bore the sins of his people, the sins of Jews and Gentiles, even Edomites. And those sins were punished by God in him so that all who believe in him would be saved. And after his death and resurrection... As more and more Gentiles are turning to God, believing in the gospel, and coming into the church, the Jews are perplexed. They're trying to figure out what in the world are we supposed to think about this, all of these Gentile people coming in. And James, the lead pastor of Jerusalem, the the Jerusalem church, he pulls out the book of Amos. This is in Acts 15. He pulls out the book of Amos. He he probably has it memorized. and, and, And he quotes chapter 9, what, what, what I just referred to a moment ago, and he says, what you are seeing now is a fulfillment of that prophecy. The conversion of even Edomites is pointing to a conversion of Gentiles from all the nations. And therefore, the years of hardship of Jacob and the centuries of hardship of God's people throughout the entire Old Testament are the things that leads towards the advent of Christ who through his own hardship and affliction ushers in worldwide blessing to all who would receive him. While it seems at first the kingdoms of this world have the upper hand, 
The kingdom of Christ continues to grow as more and more people bend the knee to him and receive his salvation. All of history is moving towards that great day described in Revelation eleven fifteen, where angelic voices from heaven proclaim that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And it will be a kingdom with no affliction, no suffering, no sorrow, and no death. All of God's people will be able to enjoy it. But for those who don't receive him, like Esau or Herod or many people today, maybe even someone in this room here, for those who don't receive Christ, that person's best life is now. 1 Peter 1.24 says, All flesh, all, all man is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. There, there can be a kind of, uh, of temporary uh, success and, 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 and acclaim and, and power uh, that, that's, that the godless can enjoy in this age, but it all evaporates quickly. Esau traded in his birthright for a bowl of stew, for wealth and power and influence for a few decades. And then what? Going back to Psalm 73, after Asaph confessed his envy for the wicked, he eventually comes to his senses and he gets his head on straight and he says, but when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. He goes to worship God that begins to give him a proper framework and a a better way for interpreting his experience. And he says, then I discerned their end. Whose end? The end of the people that he was jealous of. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment swept utterly away by terrors. He's talking about the judgment that comes to those who, like Esau, spend a lifetime despising God, a few decades of enjoying red stew and fleeting wealth and political power and sinful pleasures. A few decades of that gives way to eternal terror and judgment at the hands of an angry God. Then Asaph realizes that even in his suffering, he is far better off than the ungodly person in their ease. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. He recognizes God's presence is with him even through the affliction and the heartache. He says, you hold my right hand. You guide me with counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. The suffering of the godly gives way to glory. It's interesting. There's, there's, there's two ways to live. There's, there's, there's two peoples. There's two groups. There's two trajectories. And, and, and for one, the, 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 the glory of this age gives way to terror. And, and, and for the godly, the, the suffering of this age gives way to to glory. That's actually hinted at in Genesis 35:29, which describes Isaac's death as him being gathered to his people. He, he's going somewhere. The suffering and affliction of this life are not the final word for God's people. Asaph says that, that Isaac and those like him are received into glory. The book of Philippians says that for all of God's people, death is merely being absent from the body, but present with the Lord. The one whom the psalmist says in his presence, there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's where this is all going. And for Asaph, and I think this is really important, for Asaph, it's not just that he knows that he will have God after his affliction, when his life is over, but he also takes comfort in that he has God even right now in his affliction, and he realizes that that is all he needs 
He says in Psalm 73, verse 23, or verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Portion, I like that. That's inheritance language. Asaph recognizes that what he has in God in his affliction is superior to anything the ungodly can have in their comfort. What profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? And, and belief, belief in that, that having little and possessing God is better than much and not, belief in that was ultimately the thing that kept Jacob and all of the patriarchs moving forward on their spiritual pilgrimage. If they assessed reality by just their physical eyes, surely they would be discouraged. Uh, Jacob would look at Esau and all of his success and then look at his own life and and how crummy it is (laughs) and all the hardship and feel as if God has abandoned him. But when Jacob looks with the eyes of faith, then he knows he can see what is really going on. While we are told in Genesis 36 that Esau settled in Sire, Jacob describes his whole life as one of sojourning. Not of settling, but of sojourning. At some point along the way, Jacob comes to realize that the world as it is now is not his final destination, and it is not his true home. As we bring our study on the patriarchs to a close and and move on, God willing, to a special Christmas series starting next week, it seems good to me one more time to go back to Hebrews 11, which really sums up the attitude of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and really should reflect the heart of all of God's people, even you, this morning. Author of Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Brothers and sisters, God has prepared for you a city. The world of wreckage and ruin and chaos may be the church's zip code now, but praise God, it isn't our final destination. And in the meantime, as you wait for the final consummation of all of God's promises for you, know that even now, God is continually with you. He holds your right hand, He guides you with His counsel, and afterwards, He will receive you into glory. God is our portion. He is our strength. He is our inheritance forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for helping us through some uh, difficult and challenging passages. And I pray that You have spoken clearly and we have heard, (laughs) and that we will continue to hear as we ponder and reflect on the things that we have read about today. Father, I pray for everyone here who struggles under affliction and hardship. And like Asaph, slips into envy. Envy of of the ungodly and how awesome everything seems to be going for them and how crummy everything seems to be going for your people. Father, if if anyone here is in that attitude, I pray that you would give them comfort and that you would speak to their hearts and that you would remind them of what is really true. 
I I pray that you would remind them of your love for them. And I pray that you would remind them that all of your promises are coming true and that even now you are working in their lives and that you are working all things together for their good. Even if it's hard to see right now through the pain and the confusion. Father, help us to be like the patriarchs of old, recognizing that the land that we're in now, we are just passing through. Something better is coming for us. Let our hope be in that. In Jesus' name, amen.